0: Blog
1: Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome again to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am editorial director of Small Business Digest. We come to you through now four media here at Blog Talk Radio, through our online newsletter, uh, and new this week uh ustream.tv slash small uh business digest uh we have a new video up so you might find interesting it's on uh, m- uh medical marijuana uh a successful business and uh how to cre- create one and operate one and finally uh through our uh e uh e newsletters and and via our magazine They're all now available to you on SmallBusinessDigest.net. That's SmallBusinessDigest.net. Each month, we touch more than 1 million small business leaders through our various channels. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are carefully chosen for their expertise or experiences. They do not pay to be on this program, but rather our editors and readers, just like you, identify them. Uh, They also identify topics of possible interest uh, to our audience. If you have any suggestions or particular topics you want us to cover, please email us at Info at net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Uh, tonight's program, like all our efforts, have a, w- a wide diversity of guests. We're going to talk about the impact of Obamacare on a small business. We're going to talk about how the uh, numbers are critical to uh, and the success of any small business. We're going to talk about the five... Uh, mistakes companies make when they go to a trade show. Our, our first guest is Larry Weinstein. He's a CPA from Houston, and he thinks one of the main reasons businesses struggle is because of ineffectual, wasteful, and expensive marketing that doesn't work. Larry, welcome to the program.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I've uh, been looking forward to, to speaking with your listeners all day.
1: Well, uh, I've been looking uh, to forward, too, because I like what I've heard. But before we get into we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, uh, how, uh, how they got to where they are now. So it's all sure. yours, Larry.
2: Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm a C- like you mentioned earlier, I'm a CPA in private practice, and I started, I believe it was right around 1990, and I started with uh, no money, uh, no marketing knowledge, and no clients. It's a very bad way to start any business, but um, I did what uh, everybody else in my profession did. I looked around to see what they were doing, and I basically copied them. What I didn't know was I was copying from people who didn't know what they were doing either, and This is talking about a CPA, but we can really say this could be any business. It could be the plumber, uh, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. They look at what everybody else is doing and they copy what they're doing, and and that's usually not very effective. Uh, Fast forward uh, a number of years, uh, I had tried what everybody else was doing without a whole lot of success. Uh, What I did is I actually looked outside of our profession, and what I actually found was a field of marketing uh, that's known as direct response marketing. And when I started adopting the principles of direct response marketing, that really transformed my entire practice, and it turned everything around. And uh, it made it very easy to attract clients to myself uh, that uh, I didn't have to – entice Uh, i didn't have to lower my fees and and it just made life a whole lot easier
1: well then we're going to start we're going to talk about that but you say the numbers uh, are key so uh... uh, my first question to you is what is the basic of of, uh, uh... of your efforts and uh... that you'd like to share with the audience
2: well, the basics of, of direct response marketing, before I really get into that, if I could just take a moment and, and share with the listeners what most, what most small businesses do, they try to copy what they see the big businesses do. They try to do what's image, what's known as image advertising or brand building, in other words, like, uh, if I can say, the Coca-Colas of the world, the Nikes, the the very big companies. And what they're really trying to do is they they put their marketing, uh, they get their name out there, and they hope that when their prospective client decides that they want to buy that particular service, that they will think of them kindly and they will come to them as a customer. Direct response marketing, on the other hand, it identifies a particular uh, target market that you would like to attract, It develops a marketing message that is a compelling message, Uh, and it's asking them to do something specifically to, to identify themselves, to raise their hand. And the way that we typically do that is in the professional services business, but it can be really any business, is you put together some type of information premium. I like to use books, but it could be CDs, it could be DVDs, what have you. And you have to put a compelling title on it, and you offer that out to your prospective clients, um, and, you, and then they, they express their interest. They say, I want to get that. Um, as an example, I do a lot of work in the area of IRS problem resolution, people that have IRS tax problems in my core business. Well, I wrote a book, The Ten Common Mistakes Taxpayers Make When Beginning to Solve Their IRS Tax Problems. Well, let me ask, if, if you have an IRS tax problem and I made the offer to you that said I've got this book for free, all you've, got to know, all you've got to do is let me know about it, do you think that you might be a little interested in hearing what I have to say?
1: Of course, and, and what a yeah. great title.
2: Yes, thank you. So at that point, they raise their hand. They can either call an 800 number. Uh, they can go to my website. Uh, they let me know that they're interested. And I know there that they're, you know, they, they very likely have an IRS tax problem, and maybe they're in the, the mood of finally getting it solved. So that's, that's what's called a pretty good prospect for me. That begins the marketing conversation.
1: Well, and well,
2: then we – go ahead.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. Right, stop right there. Do, okay. In order to get the book, do they have to give you their information?
2: It's a physical book, so absolutely,
1: they okay. have to give me
2: their They have to give me their name, address, city, state, and zip. And I'm only marketing that because I'm, I'm living in a very big big city, so I'm really marketing that here in the Houston and surrounding areas. But they could also go. They can also go to a website. Um, and leave that same information, or, or call an 800 number. Either way, it's a physical product. I have to send it to them. And, of course, I do that intentionally, you, as you can imagine why.
1: Yes. Well, uh, but uh, uh, I don't want to get you off track, but I just want to talk to a point that came up today uh, with one, right. one of the stories. Um, we seem to be mo- uh, moving to the uh, on the Internet to download a PDF of the book. Right. Yet you're saying it's a physical book. Um, Correct. Do you you have any comments on that before we get back to uh, a PDF versus a physical book?
2: Absolutely. There's, um, there's two reasons that I do it. The first one I kind of alluded to is I want somebody that's interested. I want to know their contact information. I, um, I want to be able to put them in my marketing funnel. I want to be able to follow up with them and send them additional pieces, maybe additional books or special reports, a newsletter, whatever it is, to stay in touch with them. And I'd like to also do that via email as well, but email is not quite as powerful. So let me ask you a question. If you are looking to hire a professional, would you be more impressed by a physical book or would you be more impressed by a PDF? Which one of those products would give me more credibility and authority?
1: Oh, well, uh, no doubt in my mind.
2: I would hope you would say the book.
1: But uh, mm-hmm. in this in this new world today that we're living in with this younger uh I just saw a study that said that um, there's a real dichotomy now between in ages between people who read a physical book and people who read a book uh prefer to read it on a uh, uh on a tablet or uh, a Kindle uh-huh. or uh and, and it's, a question, it's a question, ironically, that came up. I didn't want to knock you off. Uh, no, no uh,
2: problem. I mean, I, I still think there's something pretty magical about having a physical piece of, of book that has paper and ink on it. Um, and then from a marketing point of view, um, uh, I think, I, I personally think, and I know from my own experiences, if somebody sends me a book or if I buy a book, okay? And I also send out some other stuff beside the book. I send out CDs and whatnot. But, you know, we're kind of conditioned. You cannot throw that book away. We have a hard time psychologically throwing that book away. So we're going to somehow keep that book around. Oh, you've seen my
1: house, huh? Yeah, You've seen my
2: house, huh? Yeah, so I'm a book lover also. But also the fact that if I send you a PDF, it's in your inbox, and you may or may not open it. You likely might – maybe you'll read it, but you, you you won't print it out. And in terms of credibility and authority, a PDF just doesn't – it's just not the same as having a physical book. It just isn't.
1: Okay, now let's get back the, originally uh, to your original hmm? thought. Um, you were saying uh, you, you asked them to, uh, to a call to action. Uh, but you, you were going through the process, and I uh, knocked you off a little bit. But let's get back on track because I think you have a lot of good things to say.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, but so basically, there's, uh, in direct response marketing, you're not just putting your name out there. You're not just saying, in, in the example to follow along with uh, with my core business, I'm not just saying, "Hey guys, here I am. I've been." Uh, I've been a CPA now for 25 years. I'm really good at what I do. I've got all these people that work for me that are really smart. And it goes on and on and on. And by the way, uh, whenever you decide that you think you might want to uh, solve your IRS tax problem here I am think of me um, no that's not what I want to do I want to make a specific offer to them today first and foremost I'd like to get them to raise their hand but then once they've raised their hand and I send the uh, I send the book out then I begin following up with them um, I've got a follow-up sequence that you know are you ready to solve your problem yet have you thought about this continue to educate them uh, because I'm an expert in my subject area So I'm answering some what what I would call frequently asked questions, the questions that I hear all the time. I'm also answering for them what I would call should ask questions. In other words, I'm an expert. I know my subject area and. If they knew as much as I knew, they would be asking these questions also, but they don't even know enough to ask those questions, you follow me? So I'm trying to, to educate them and uh, in, in, in to nurture them so that they know that when the time comes, I'm the only logical um, expert, the only logical choice for them, because nobody else, frankly, is doing this type of marketing, which I've also heard called educational marketing. Somebody might send out one piece And if they don't respond, then they give up on them. But even with the marketing that they're doing, they're not providing any valuable information. They're just saying, if you have a problem, just give me a call. But they're not providing any good information, telling them how, um, in my example, how the IRS tax problem process works, all of those things. You know what I'm saying? Uh,
1: Absolutely. So if I could – recapitulate back to you what you're saying is uh just don't contact them yet provide them with continuing information uh on a a continuing basis uh in which they can make a bit more better or a more informed decision
2: absolutely and we call that we call that follow-up because the way it works in direct marketing, when somebody raises their hand, and I spoke about that earlier, we ask them to do something. We, ha- we have a call to action, get a copy of my free book, get my CD, whatever. Well, 100% of the people that raise their hand, first and foremost, 100% of the people aren't going to do business with you anyway. That's just That's just kind of a given. But there's going to be some small segment of the population that your marketing message came into their life at exactly the right time. It's like, I've been thinking about dealing with this, and I'm just starting to look around, and here you are, you're offering me this information. And frankly, there's many instances where people will call up my office and they're not even really interested in the book that I'm offering. They just say, "I need to make an appointment to see Mr. Weinstein." And ultimately, that is the goal, right? I need them to come in so that we can see what we can do for them. But for those people that aren't ready today, they do have some interest, or they wouldn't have raised their hand in the first place. So it's up to us to continue to educate them and to follow up with them because people are always going to be people are always going to buy when they're ready to buy, not when we're ready to sell, right? It doesn't matter what business that we're in. Of course, we're always ready to sell, right? But the the people that that we have as prospects, they're going to come around in their own time. There might be lots of things going on in their lives that we have no idea what that is. But if we stay in touch with them, when eventually they decide it's time to pull the trigger and to take care of the problem or to buy whatever it is that you're selling you're going to be right there because you followed up and most businesses out there they might send one follow up and if they don't buy they think well they're never going to buy and that's not necessarily true
3: so well, you ma- spend
2: a little bit of, you spend a little bit of money on follow up but i mean it pays off it pays off handsomely
1: well how often do you how many times do you follow up uh, on on average
2: um it depends most of the sequences that i have will follow up probably at a minimum of 10 times but i'm always looking at ways in which you can increase that you know to add steps to the sequence and um you know you can't follow up too much and and sometimes you know after the 7th or 8th time they'll finally you know come around and and they'll make an appointment and sign up to see you um, but it's going to be on it's going to be on their time, and you know if you're charging fair prices for what it is that you do, um, most of the money that you spend in marketing is going to be on on what we talked about earlier on the lead generation, just in getting them to raise their hand and identify themselves to us. Okay, so um, once they've done that, um, you know we've got a, a cost per acquisition, a cost per lead. Following up with them is relatively inexpensive, you know.
1: It is. In the, we have about thirty seconds, Larry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if, if our audience, someone wanted to talk to you, hopefully they don't have an IRS problem. <laughs> how do they? How do they do it?
2: Um, well, um, I've got a website because I teach these same techniques and strategies and systems to accountants and CPAs, and uh, that website is Smart Marketing foraccountants.com smart marketing for accountants.com
1: well Larry thanks a lot for, uh, for coming and joining us uh, tonight uh, I learned a little bit and I hope our audience did as well
2: well thanks it was, uh, it was a pleasure to be with you, you had some good questions I, I hope people got some value out of this thank you thank you after,
1: after this uh, brief m- moment we'll be there with our next guest
3: Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com.
1: Our next guest is actually someone we invited back. He's it's, it's Tom Robbins of Kentico. And the reason I asked him back is we were, uh, uh, he was giving us such good advice the last time. I, I wanted him to come back and talk more. Tom, are you with us?
4: I am. I am. How are you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing fine.
4: Tom, well, thanks for having me back.
1: Well, um, you're, uh, you're the, uh, just the second guest we've invited back. But, um, and the reason we wanted you back is uh, we were talking about websites and what are the best uh, tools, uh, best, best ways of doing it. And uh, uh, it re- we got a lot of response from that, so I wanted to come back and uh, talk a little bit more about that. Are you game?
4: I am, Absolutely.
1: Okay, uh, Tom, my first question to you is, uh, what are the elements of a good uh, e-commerce w- website?
4: Sure, a good, so based on uh, the data that we've seen and the, the work that we do with customers, I think there's a couple of core elements around a good e-commerce site. Number one is you have to have visibility, right? If you put up the world's best website and nobody shows up, it's not good. So thinking of... Uh, of a marketing strategy, whether it's uh, pay-per-click or whether it's uh, syndication or something along that line. So you bring your, your visitors in. And that's the same with any website. With specifically e-commerce, um, it's been findability of products. So being able to organize your products and your layout in a way that makes sense for your audience. So using industry standard terms, being able to, to describe it in a very specific way um, <clears throat> excuse me uh... and then second being able to work on a checkout process that is drop dead simple uh, is another big issue that we've seen so the idea that you get a lot of people in um, you get a lot of people working through your funnel But let's be honest, if they get through the process and they find it extremely difficult to check out and to purchase, they're going to drop off and they're going to go somewhere else. And then uh, probably the other pieces that I always recommend people think about are the idea of uh, marketing automation. So being able to contact customers um, and do it in an automated way so that you could trigger action. So if someone comes and put something in a shopping cart and then leaves or if someone provides you registration information and they look around on your site for something interesting you can contact them and nurture that lead Um, and then also being able to connect products it's one of the most powerful things that we hear uh, from our e-commerce vendors which is around the idea if people buy product a being able to to connect them to product b which is similar um, and then do recommendations. Well, Joe bought product B. Um, th- those are kind of the high levels for e-commerce.
1: Oh, well, I have two points to make on that. Uh, I, uh, across the, my desk today came a uh, 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 release uh, saying uh, that add-on, that feature, that's, uh, that little uh, squib on the top that says add-on to it is very important. And what I remembered from it is that orange is a key color, uh, uh... uh... better color but uh... could you address the add-on issue and then i'll come back to the other one that happened today
4: sure what do you mean by the add-on issue the idea of oh. add-on products or bolt-on products
1: uh... uh yes uh, you, you you uh... you know you're reaching the end of the uh... uh... purchase cycle and then they then they say uh... something comes up and says add-on if you bu- uh... Yeah. if you bought flowers do you want a vase that sort of thing
4: yeah, it's it's the traditional upsell, right? It's the idea yes. that when you get to the end that you want to be able to sell them additional products. Um, and there's some, some interesting data out there which really talks about uh, the level that people are willing to look at for pricing. Um, and it, it's an old retailer thing, right? If you're walking out and you see something that's like $5, you're willing to pick it up. So why not upsell that product and then connect in other products, which you're going to get via your analytics, uh, You know that if people buy product A, that they also want to buy product B. The other is um, it's also creating a sense of loyalty, right? Because people start to see that you're thinking about their needs or you're thinking about connections that you may have with them. So it becomes a very popular way, and we, we see it, Um, quite a bit in a lot of the e-commerce sites that we do with uh, being able to connect in products um, and then making sure that you're using the analytics to kind of drive that data correctly. So it's definitely one of the the best ways to to get people to to upsell or to purchase additional products without a doubt.
1: Uh, The holiday season is upcoming. Uh, what, if, you, if I came to you as a, as a potential customer, what would you advise me on my e-commerce side as being the critical elements in the holiday season?
4: Oh, wow. That's actually that's a great question, and it's an incredibly tough one
1: <laughs> because um, there are
4: so many important elements. Um, typically what I recommend uh, customers that we talk to around the holiday season is, one, ensuring that you have scale uh... making sure that your site doesn't slow or isn't slow that you've got a specific performance Um, what you tend to find in e-commerce especially around the holiday season is that people have even less patience than they have normally during the year um, and that they're going to come to your site they expect they expect performance so first and foremost make sure that you have your speedy site and that there's no issues with that um, second <laughs> excuse me second is to review your checkout process. Uh, make sure that your customers are uh, able to get through it. The minimal amounts of clicks um, are kind of the the big ones that you want to think about, so you can you can get higher conversion rates and less drop offs. Um, the other probably one of the the other big pieces that you want to think about. Is um, your sales strategy? So, are you going to be doing outbound marketing campaigns to try to bring people in, um, and then how are you going to drive your your connection with your customer? And there are there are hundreds of other ones that you could certainly work within those.
1: Well, that's a, a good start. Um, I just wanted to bring up one more point. Uh, I. Uh, 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 ticketed some tickets uh, for Thanksgiving yesterday and put them on hold for for today and sure enough uh uh in my box this, mo- this morning was a uh a message from from the airline saying uh tickets are going fast for this uh, for the Thanksgiving season you should buy now is that a good uh uh is that a good strategy and uh, how, how could uh, someone emulate it?
4: Yeah, no, that's actually a great strategy. So what you're trying to uh, you're, you're trying to increase in that is your conversion rate, and you're trying to prevent drop-offs. So a lot of times, what happens is a lot of people will shop the internet, and I've done this too. I find something interesting that I want, and I put it in my shopping cart, and then I leave the site. Um, oh, I'll come back later especially with things like tickets Um, so typically what you want to do is uh, usually 24 hours to 48 hours after the user has gone ahead and put it in the shopping cart you want to shoot them an email and that's where things like marketing automation come into play you could send them an email and say you know hey this is going quick. We only have one or two of these or something along that line and try to drive, uh, you know, try to drive them back. The other question, and, and this doesn't work for airline scenarios, but what a lot of people may do is then wait another several days and using marketing automation, if they don't return, maybe offer them a, a slight discount to try to bring them back uh, to move it through. But yeah, definitely... What they're trying to do is reconnect with the user, and they're trying to make it easier uh, for, you know, you to understand, hey, I've got this thing in my box, and I need to go ahead and purchase it.
1: Well, uh, uh, Tom, it's always a pleasure listening to you because uh, I I learn a lot, and I hope our audience does as well. Uh, If people want to reach you, will you tell them how again?
4: Absolutely. So there's uh, the company I work for is Kentico, K-E-N-T-I-C-O.com. Uh, we're a content management provider. For those people that are interested in learning more about marketing uh, and learning about uh, marketing skills, we provide a, a free website that people can go to. We've got some great video content, audio, as well as uh, white papers that you can get to at digital. Dash marketing-university.com dash and we'd love to have people come and if you're looking for specific things please let us know and then personally you can reach me via email at Thomas R at kensico.com or via twitter at t robbins t-r-o-b-b-i-n-s,
1: t-r-o-b-b-i-n-s. Uh, Tom, thank you again for coming on
4: Thank you, have a great evening
1: You too Our next guest should be Denise Graziano Denise, are you there?
3: Yes, I am, Don. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Well, I'm doing fine. We're running uh, uh, a little late today, but that's, uh, that's good. Uh, the nice thing about it is we, don't, uh, we can go over the hour. Uh, Denise, we always start asking our guests a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are now. Then we'll talk about you, uh, your company and about the five mistakes. But tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Sure, Don. Well, I've been in marketing for over 26 years, and my firm, Graziano Associates, is 21 years old. And in that time, our focus has always been on helping solve a variety of marketing and sales challenges for our clients who tend to be B2B corporate. And while the types of work that we've done for them has evolved over the years, we've always helped them with a combination of internal and external marketing and relationship building. And internally, we help clients to reward and recognize their employees for their hard work and service, so they're motivated to continue to do so. And externally, we help them build better relationships with their clients, with marketing materials, sales promotions, awards, corporate gifts. And then we help them build better client relationships during their trade shows with best practices that can turn a trade show into a money-generating event, which is what I think you want to talk about tonight.
1: Right, I do. But I want to say that that's one of the greatest 20-second uh, elevator pitches I've heard in a long time. I was really, tr- I was really trying to uh, get a little bit about you personally. Now, one of the things I heard is after six years in the business, you jumped off the cliff and started your own business. And this is a small business uh, uh, radio show. So uh, why did you make that big leap?
3: You know, it's funny. When I got out of school and I started working working in marketing, I always knew that I wanted to work for myself. And so five years out of college, I decided, you know, I had worked in a couple of different industries at that point, and the timing was good, and I decided to try it. And the business took off from there.
1: Well, I I love it. Oh, the business took off from from there, but you don't talk about the 24-7, et cetera. Okay. (laughs)
3: Uh, uh, All right. uh,
1: We'll go on from there. Uh, uh, By the way, uh, 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 Denise has written an article, which you can uh, find on uh, uh, smallbusinessdigest.net. It's uh, featured in this month's uh, um, uh, uh, list of uh, uh, stories. But uh, we're going to talk about the five mistakes uh, companies make at a trade shows. What are they, Denise?
3: Well, there are quite a few that happen, but I like to put them in the f- top five category. And the the biggest two are the beginning and the end. But the first one I want to talk about is in booth traffic, driving booth traffic. Qualified booth traffic is the key to any successful show. And that's one area where people, companies, whether they're large or small, neglect to put the effort in in advance of the show before anybody even sets foot in the venue. And doing that really, it takes some homework and planning, whether you use some old-school Uh, attempts or using technology, you really need to drive people to your booth and give them a reason to come and talk to you because there's a lot that goes on at a show. A lot of distractions, bright shiny objects and to just set up your booth and expect people to show up well that's not going to get you any results. So um, for example, you know you can put together any kind of compelling argument for them to come and see you and sometimes it even requires giving them a little bit of a a bit of a bribe you know an offer to win something at your booth you can do any number of creative things to get them to come and speak with you people might say oh you know trade shows uh, might be a dying breed but you know due to technology driven alternatives but the fact is trade shows give exhibitors the chance to be in a room full of potential prospects but the key is to make sure they come and visit you and that can be a tremendous thing when you've got people coming to visit you and talk about the problem you can solve for them that's the critical point but the, if you don't follow up all the way through with that it can also have a drop off it's not going to carry you all the way through to the end of the show for example i was doing a, um, I was speaking at one show and Prior to the show, the attendees all got a mailer, a box from this company, which happened to be servicing the big financial industry. And they had sent a great gift with a compelling argument, and the the gift was sort of a a play on the the idea that they're very flexible in their approach. And I thought, this is great. This company gets it, and I can't wait to see what they do at their booth. And I get to the booth, and it was a terrible-looking booth. I mean, it was a white tablecloth with a little sign and no graphics nothing showing that they supported this big effort prior to the show and so that you know that's just an incongruous thing that made that particular uh, booth a disaster so that's the first mistake you have to bring people to you and that the second mistake, which this leads me to the second mistake, is not having the booth personnel there. The person that was at this booth was by himself. He wasn't dressed well. He was wearing a shirt that didn't fit him well. And, you know, having a trade show booth, you, you have to make sure, by and large, that it's going to be on par with your competitors, of course. But you have to have the personnel there. That's the second mistake, is not having the right amount of booth personnel um, you can have too many, you can have too few working in the booth, and if you have too many people, it's very off-putting. It's very intimidating. One time I was at a show where there were, it was a large booth, 30-foot by 40-foot booth with a big logo suspended above it, and there was an army of people in red shirts there, all waiting to greet whoever would dare set foot <clears> in the booth. And that, it just it's so intimidating you don't even want, want to walk in. And by the opposite, if you don't have enough personnel there, that's a disaster too because obviously people are waiting. They're not going to wait forever, and you have to have maybe some graphics playing. If it's the kind of product where you can have a demonstration, you need to have people engaged while they're in the booth. So those two things, the first two, uh, making sure you get people to come to the booth and then making sure you've got the right people there to speak with them about what it is you've got to sell.
1: And the next one?
3: The next one would be wasting money, and this is a logistics thing. The third one would be wasting money on sending too many materials to the booth. You know, you could spend a ton on shipping if you've got, for example, if your booth would require having catalogs in it. It seems like it's a no-brainer not to do this, but if you're shipping a lot of materials there and then shipping a fair number back to the office it's wasted budget and the last thing you want to see is your own materials in the trash at the booth venue I mean at the uh, trade show venue because no one likes to carry that after the show you know people are traveling they don't want to carry heavy things the great approach there is to instead bring just the right number of materials a limited number so that you can give them to people who are very interested at the time but if you run out, it's perfect opportunity afterward to continue the dialogue and the conversation you've begun with these people right after the show. Follow up, send them what they need. So you would think that that's kind of a no-brainer too. But you, if you are, are wasting money, it's just that's a budget you could be applying elsewhere.
1: Okay, and four,
3: four. It also ties in too when your promotional products are a tremendous part of any trade show, and it's where there are so many pitfalls that happen. When you choose something, it should be something that is going to be a good reflection of your company and cause this person to keep you in mind after the show. they are going to be, have been bombarded by all sorts of information, products, even promotional tools at the show, and you want yours to stand out. And the worst thing companies can do is treat promotional products as an afterthought. Oh, we need to get something to take to the booth. Um, you know, that, uh, like, uh, like the uh, not having heavy catalogs and things, you never want to choose anything bulky. But think about any trade show, and you know what, you've seen these people. When you go to a show, they've got their bags open and they meander from side to side in the hmm. aisles just trying to grab stuff off the tables, right? You know, they're there <laughs> for the free stuff. Yes. That's not your market. If you are catering to those people and just leaving a pile of things on the table for them to take, you may as well leave a pile of singles there for them to grab as they walk by. A promotional tool is really the only form of advertising that elicits a thank you when you think of it that way. And so it should be, one, a reflection of your company. It should be useful and functional, and the person getting it should think of you where they're going to need your service. So if you uh, have somebody that travels, it might be something they use on the road. If it's for your office, it should be something where they're going to think of you where they're going to need your services in the office. If you deal with people in the home, likewise, it could be some sort of a home product. And we recommend that clients would bring, say, three tiers of gifts to any show, one for the average person who stops by and engages you in conversation, not just to have a pile of them on the table but they actually do, you know, find out a little bit more about you, take your information. That doesn't have to be expensive by any stretch, but it still should be something that's quality, well-decorated, because the last thing you want is to get something where the the imprint smudges off or it's not sharp. Um, The second tier of gift we would recommend is something for a better prospect, somebody who's really interested in what you've got to say. And definitely worth following up with you need you know a smaller number of that and then the smallest number of gift is the highest caliber gift that you keep hidden aside for the good prospects or the the existing clients who come to see you or maybe the people who are actually buying from you right at the show and in all these cases when people buy promotional products as an afterthought or they just try to price shop online so many things can go wrong because you're never sure you're going to get what you're seeing you know, in a picture online. So you always want to make sure you're dealing with a company that will speak with you on the phone, walk you through some the best choices, what's going on at the current time, something that you're going to see an actual decorated piece prior to purchasing because, again, it's a reflection on your company and you want it to be to the levels that you expect.
1: We so, only have two We only have two minutes left. So, okay, so the last uh, one
3: is your post-show follow-up. The last uh, mistake is the post-show follow-up. If you don't have a system in place at the end of the show to monitor and cultivate these leads into sales, then you've wasted all your effort. Yeah. And that can be done in a number of ways. You can have an automatic survey sent to them. Once you've scanned in their, their badge, you can have temporary help if you've got, you know, not enough office staff to handle it right after the show. Hire temporary people. Hire college interns just to keep that touch going until you can schedule the formal meeting, email, phone, uh, phone meeting with the client. Because the worst thing you can do is let these uh, precious leads languish.
1: Well, you know, uh I'm I'm always amazed. I hand out my card at uh at trade shows and uh uh if I get one in 13 to follow up, it's a lot. It it's it's always been amazed me that they don't follow up when I give them a card.
3: Yeah, it's terrible and that's that's an, a prime example. We had a, a a we know of a company that was at a show where we were, and they had done 800 new leads. They had a tremendous new product, but because the buying cycle was a full year and they didn't have the people in place to follow up, they lost out in an entire year's worth of sales because they didn't have a system for the post-show follow-up. That's why that is so important
1: uh well let's talk about something else uh sure. uh, uh, uh what always uh, uh, i object to at this show is as i walk down the aisle and i look at a booth it'll say the the, the you know, usa widget company is the greatest company on the face of the earth but never tells me the benefit to me of of walking into that booth do you want to comment on that
3: you're exactly right, Don. That's the that's the key. Your messaging has to solve a problem for somebody. Just to have your little features list and a bullet list outside the booth doesn't do anything for anybody. You want to know what's in it for you. You want to know how your problem is going to be solved, and that is where people in sales in general, if your messaging isn't reaching out to your prospect that you understand they're pains fears and frustrations you're totally missing the mark and you're right if that's not being shown at the booth and it doesn't warrant you stopping to talk to them
1: well uh, let me let me go on to that point uh i learned this from uh i'll mention him he's now in the great trade show the sky but a man named rocky rocky piero was the greatest salesman i knew at a trade show he sold uh, premium seeds. But he said, every person that he walked into, his first question is, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And uh, when I walk into most booths, they say, we have the greatest product. And they don't bother to ask me why I'm there. I mean, uh, what do you think are the two or three things a salesperson at a booth should do uh, um, in greeting customers?
3: Well, I think you're right. I think that they should find out what, you know, depending on the topic of the show, whatever, you know, what is your biggest challenge right now with respect to, say, they're selling software. You know, what's your biggest um, challenge? What, what, what needs of yours are not being met? And really start a conversation with them because, hey, you know what, not everybody that sets fo- foot into every booth needs what you have to sell. And it really does have to be a genuine effort. So I... Always encourage salespeople, whether it's at a booth or elsewhere, to get to know their ideal customer so that you know exactly how you can help people based on what you've got to sell. And if that person that stops to talk to you, you know, doesn't meet that description of your ideal customer, then you really don't want to be wasting your time or theirs.
1: Well, that's that's very true. Uh, I, I find that my pro, uh, uh, problem going to I don't think I could ever again man uh, a booth. I think of just the fatigue of doing it, and, and you, clearly at the end of shows you can see the booth personnel winding down. Uh, how do you get them to refresh themselves? Uh, three days is a long time for a show. Uh, but
3: you're right that you and you bring up a great point. Um, a lot of companies don't adequately staff a booth or give the people time to take breaks because at the end of the day or let alone three days they are not going to be as fresh they are not going to be as enthusiastic and they're not going to want to sell so you have to make sure that you give them ample time to take a break go out you know outside of the show floor have a bite to eat get some fresh air and take breaks intermittently during the day because they will be worn out and by the time the end of the show comes they're going to be missing out on a lot of sales because they just don't aren't motivated to do it
1: um if a uh, customer comes to you a client comes to you and say i'm i'm going to stu- uh, i I want to go to a show what are the three questions you ask them um are you there yes yes okay what are the three questions you ask them that you want to know in order to to help them uh uh uh, do the best best uh, 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 the b- best for them
3: well first we'd ask what their goal is for the show is it a product launch is it uh, introducing new information is it just general brand awareness? find out what the general goal of the show is then we'd ask what who their ideal client is and what it is that they are then solving for that person for that that particular I mean we do business with people we you know it's not a a uh, B2C to, B to world, a B B2B world, it's a P2P P world. We're dealing with people, ultimately, who make these decisions. So you are solving a problem for a person. And we want to make sure that the messaging, then, reflects that. And so, just like you said before, how it's just, uh, you know, we have the greatest widget in the world. No, it has to be really tailored to that ideal, that client, that ideal prospect, and what they need. And then we would help them tailor messaging and um, you know, everything about that booth experience so that it's going to bring that to the next step, closer and closer to the sale.
1: Well, uh, uh, we could go on and on. Unfortunately, we, uh, our, uh, our next next guest is waiting in the wings. Denise, people want to uh, reach out to you. How do they do it?
3: Well, you can uh, find us online at GrazianoAsos.com, which is G-R-A-Z-I-A. N-O-A-S-S-O-C dot com. You can reach me directly at Denise at dot com or at 203-254-0195. Uh, uh,
1: Denise, thank you for a very interesting uh, few minutes. Come again.
3: Thanks a lot, Don. Take care.
1: You uh, Our next guest is Dr. Steve Trobiani. Uh, He's a small business owner in Minnesota and recently learned that he'd been kicked off his insurance uh, at the end of the year and forced onto the exchanges, and he has a lot to talk about. Are you there, Steve?
0: I I am done. Okay. Good evening.
1: Good evening, and welcome to the show. Um, uh, First, Steve, we always ask uh, our guests to say a little bit about themselves, uh, who they are and how they got to where they are now. So, uh, Steve, Um, the floor is yours.
0: Okay, I'll I'll probably start off with uh, I, uh, after finishing college, uh, attended medical school at Loyola in Chicago, Uh, finished that, did my internship. um, uh, Following my internship, spent three years in the military as a uh, a general medical officer uh, and then came back and did my residency training in neurology at Yale. Um, and through this time, I, my only interest was to practice medicine, because uh, I had a, uh, a strong interest in medicine from an early age. Uh, as I, as time evolved, however, uh, we became more and more, uh, mired in all of the bureaucracy that has followed managed care, uh. And that bureaucracy has just reached a fever pitch now with the introduction of Obamacare. The, the thing that I think the, the people should understand is that managed care is actually responsible for the rising health care cost. It was initially um, implemented in 1980 to contain that cost, and uh, it, over the course of time, has become so large and so cumbersome that it's now actually producing the majority of the cost.
1: Okay. So uh, are you in private practice now?
0: I, I am in private practice now, uh, but because of these, these various changes over the years, I have been devoting more and more of, of my time to exploring ways that we can actually truly make health care more affordable Uh, and accessible uh, and improve the quality of the healthcare that's that's being uh, offered across the board. And I I, uh, began exploring that in earnest uh, around 2005. Uh, In 2008, I I actually tried to create a company uh, that would do this uh, and found that there was actually one small tax law standing in my way. Uh, and if without, without changing that tax law, uh, we couldn't actually implement the uh, program I had come up with. Uh, and so uh, from that point forward, I have been uh, struggling to try and, and get, a, get people to understand what I'm talking about doing uh, because it's a it's a it's a paradigm. Uh we have been managing healthcare delivery costs for 35 years and that has failed miserably uh in terms of controlling costs. So what I'm doing is taking this from the standpoint of managing healthcare finance, managing how we fund healthcare and doing it in a way that actually creates a fund which becomes self-sustaining after a period of 15 years
1: and uh, okay so now tell us your ideas
0: um it's it's a, actually a very uh simple uh plan um i'm quite surprised no one uh has come up with it and i know no one has come up with it because when i first introduced this in 2008 to a marketing uh, uh guy uh He looked at me and said, have you put a patent on this? And I just said, no, it's just an idea. You can't patent it. And he (laughs) he just laughed at me and said, no, people patent ideas all the time. So at his direction, I fill out a patent application, and to my surprise, I actually got it. Um, So the the plan is to take a a company uh, that currently self funds and have them put as much money into an HRA as they would ordinarily put into the purchase of a traditional insurance policy for their employees. Uh, the average company with 100 employees uh, would spend just slightly over a million dollars annually uh, under those circumstances. Uh, 30, roughly 30% of that, uh, of the money that goes into a standard insurance policy, Uh, goes to the insurer, 25% goes into the insurer's reserves untaxed and at least another 5% sits in profit. So these employers would uh, typically retain 30% in the account. If you allow that to sit there untaxed and if you allow it just as it does for the insurer, so it's not costing the uh, country anything in terms of lost tax revenue. Uh, but if you allow that to sit there untaxed and allow that to grow uh, every year and the investment income to grow untaxed, again, just as it does in the insurers' reserves, uh, the employers, each employer would, have, uh, within a period of 15 years, uh, accumulate uh, about $14 million, which would then off uh, uh, slightly over a million, which was the amount he was putting in to begin with, at that point, uh, the account becomes self-sustaining. The employee's contribution becomes an HSA, conjunction with the HRA, and the employer purchases st- uh, a stop-loss policy so that if you have one individual who you know, has a real catastrophe, it doesn't bankrupt the entire program. It's covered by the, the stop-loss carrier. Uh, the um, HSA contribution would typically be about uh, you know fifteen hundred for an individual, or three thousand for a family, and that's the max amount any employee would ever have to pay in an, in a given year.
1: But let me go back. Let me see if I understand it. And uh, uh, instead of buying an insurance, uh, the insurance the employer would take that money and put it into. Um, a, uh, an account, an investment account. Did I hear you right? Or? He
0: puts it into a health reimbursement account, and, and it's important that it specifically be a health reimbursement account for, for this reason. By law, any funds the employer puts into a health reimbursement account can only be used for health care, and they cannot be removed for any other purpose without very stiff fines and penalties. So once those funds are dedicated, uh, they're dedicated, and they then have to grow and be used only for health care. There's no potential for an employer saying, well, I've got all these funds sitting there. I want to put up a new facility. I'm just going to raid that account and, and, uh, you know, go build a new building. Um, that, That literally can't happen without that employer being severely penalized for doing so.
1: Okay, but but, but the, if the employer puts in a million, million dollars into that account, is he still um, he or she still buying an insurance policy, a health care insurance no. policy?
0: No, what the employer is doing is using those funds to fund the health care for his employees. He would have to hire an administrator. But, uh, you know, I ran the numbers on the administration. If you don't do... If we don't, if as an administrator you don't try and micromanage healthcare, our doctors in this country do a very good job of of providing healthcare. We don't need uh, all of this uh, this management that's going on. We have thirty administrators for every doctor in this country. Right before Obamacare was passed, we we had built this army of administrators up, and it's costing. Uh, an enormous amount of money. Even if you paid each administrator seventy thousand in salary and benefits, um, you're talking about twenty-one million administrators because we have seven hundred thousand doctors. Twenty-one million administrators times seventy thousand is one point four eight trillion. That's fifty-six point five percent of what we spend on healthcare in this country.
1: It's well. A length- uh- Oh, well, I do know that thirty three uh, cents of every dollar spent on healthcare care is spent on uh, paperwork uh,
0: it, it, and it's actually higher than that because most of the most of the administrative cost uh, if the insurers were to count it as administrative costs, those numbers would be higher. but they count it as health delivery costs because if if i if they hired somebody to tell me what drugs I can and cannot use, they consider that part of health delivery. So it's actually but, much higher than the 33 cents.
1: Well, okay, but I, I'm, I'm still a little confused, and I'm sorry. Uh, um, sometimes I get a little dense on these things. I'm an employer. Sure. Uh, uh, I buy a, a health insurance, uh, health care insurance. But instead of giving the uh, employees the, uh, the uh, reimbursement, uh, you put it into a fund. Am I right? Okay,
0: let, 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 No, no, no. What, I, what I'm saying here is isn't is you take the same amount of money you would have used to buy a, a health insurance policy and you put that money into a health uh, reimbursement account. Now each time your employee submits a claim, You have to hire a claims administrator, but as I said, we can do the claims administration for $1,000 per employee and $500 per uh, dependent per year. So it's not terribly expensive to do the the claims administration. Um, So you hire a claims administrator. When the employee gets ill, the employee goes to to his doctor, he goes to the hospital, he goes wherever he goes that claim gets submitted to the claims administrator. The claims administrator then draws the funds from the employer's account to pay the claim. Um, Um, It's paid according to a fee schedule and the fee schedule is according to the network. Um, So there, there still has to be a network, there still has to be a fee schedule, but quite frankly those fee schedules can be much more generous than the fee schedules that are currently being being paid because we're not putting so much money into the hands of uh, the insurance executives and into the hands of all of this administrative cost.
1: Well, uh, but if one or two employees have a catastrophic illness...
0: Right. Uh, uh, that that the, then goes to the catastrophic insurance carrier. As I said in the beginning, the employer puts that money into an HRA to pay for the majority of the claims you're going to have, and uh, the statistics on this are out there um, uh, and are pretty solid, 96% of employers with 5,000 or more employees uh, up until 2014, and so uh, currently, self-fund. So they have self-funded programs. Their experience is 1% of okay. their employees... Um, typically have a less than 1%, typically have claims which would exceed what they would allocate to that employee in an HRA. For those 1%, what they have is a stop-loss policy. It's, a, it's basically a, um, a policy that covers any true catastrophe. So let's say you're an employer and you put a million into the policy and you have a catastrophic policy for 1.5 million. So if you know you have claims which exceed 1.5 million, you're covered. I I happen um,
1: to think I, I I happen to think you have a great idea. Uh my my one question is um our audience is a small business. How would it work for a small business?
0: I also toss those things around it, uh, stop-loss carriers typically require 100 employees uh, before they'll even look at a company. And most small employers obviously don't have 100 right. employees. I'm, I'm one of those. I have 10. Um, the, so I went to one of the stop-loss carriers, uh, and I said, if we did this, would you be open to allowing uh, the uh, uh, small employers with maybe 10 employees each to join uh, a consortium where they combine their lives, the lives of their employees, for the purpose of purchasing a stop-loss policy for the group. So you you have, for example, a small business alliance uh, of California. Um, You join that small business alliance. Uh, Those small businesses could conceivably have 100,000 lives. And that 100000 all of those uh, uh, individuals would contribute to purchase the stop loss policy, which would then cover the entire group. Each individual would still fund their, each individual company would still fund their HRA. The funds within the HRA would belong to each individual company. The HSA funds would belong to each individual employee. The only thing that gets covered uh, as a group. Is to stop loss insurance, but that allows you access to it, and it provides that coverage.
1: Oh, one last question, because we are running out of time. Uh, how would you satisfy the requirement now that you have to have a health care insurance under Obamacare? We
0: that that's the sticking point, um, and that's one of the things that that in order for this to work would would have to be changed. Um, so what I. Proposing at this time is that Obamacare be not quite so stringent about requiring people to have a a policy from a health insurer. That, as long as you have coverage, health coverage that is able to satisfy all the needs that are, are expressed in Obamacare, that should be adequate. Quite frankly. And this is where the unions are upset. The, yes. unions, the union plans are actually much more generous than the uh, policies sold by the insurers. And the union plans operate the way I'm talking about this plan operating, except that they've never been able to accumulate funds. The, the, Section 419 in the IRS code um, provides for funds to go into an HRA untaxed and remain tax as long as those funds are fully utilized in 13 months. If, the, if, the, if you have more in the account than you're going to utilize in 13 months, then it's going to be taxed away. And what I'm saying is amend Section 419 so that the funds can grow, allow these, these plans to occur, and I think the unions definitely want to see that happen. Um, and we have, we can create a system which will, uh, within a period of 15 years, eliminate the need for any employer to ever fund healthcare again. In fact, the the fund doubles, even with average utilization, the fund doubles every 15 years. So within 30 years, you can begin covering retirees, and that takes the pressure off Medicare as well. This is, uh, it's a very economically sound approach. Uh, it's not going to cost the government a dime to do it, but it would take a lot of the control away. And I think right now the, the uh, issue is, you know, the, the insurers love this control because, uh, as you pointed out in the beginning, uh, my policy is being uh, – I received a, a letter from Medica, who's my insurer, uh, who's a division of United Healthcare that they're no longer going to fund any uh, small businesses, they're not going to provide policies for any small businesses in Minnesota as of January 2014. Well, that means they're going to force all the small businesses onto the exchanges, which is beneficial to them because any health care that I or my employees then uh, pursue through the exchanges is paid at the Medicare fee schedule not at the commercial insurance fee schedule which is higher so Medica pays less their premiums go up and their profit margins get wider but nobody but Medica benefits well the the, the government does too because they're taking 10 of every dollar. dollars
1: Doctor I find this conversation fascinating unfortunately we've run out of time Uh, if the people want to reach you how do they do it
0: um, they can go to my website, which is www.politicsandandhealthcare.com. Uh, they can also get a copy of the book, which is called Sustainable Healthcare Reform uh, through Amazon.com. Uh, it's an ebook, book uh, which they can download to Kindle if they have a Kindle. They can also purchase a, a print version of the book through my website. Uh, they can... Uh, download the book from my website, uh, and they can reach me by phone if they would like to at my office, which is 763-416-1400.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fascinating, and I wish you good luck on it, because we all need it when it comes to health care.
0: I appreciate your, uh, your inviting me onto your show. I'd be happy to come in and do this a bit more at length, because it's a very complicated issue, uh, it would probably take me about oh, maybe 40 minutes to, to go through all of the details that are involved here.
1: Okay. Uh, we'll try to work something out. Thank you, Doctor. Right,
0: good talking to you. Bye now.
1: All our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and uh, add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at Blog Talk Radio slash Small Business Digest. If you like what you heard, tell others about it. If you would like to uh, be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at is-incorp, sorry, at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Uh, That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We also remind uh, listeners that besides our radio efforts, we have a new uh, video channel. We come to you via email, uh, all of that, and we have a magazine. It's all there at uh, smallbusinessdigestmag.com. Small business mag, smallbusinessdigestmag.com for For everybody here, for rich in the control room, thank you and good night.